Hi, I'm Don Caldwell, and you're at the point of learning with Peter Horn, who was my English teacher around 20 years ago. So, about five years ago, I stumbled upon a political debate on Facebook, and it led me to recommend that Peter read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. It's a book that really opened my eyes to how people become so polarized in times like we're seeing today. And also, it really changed my own approach with how I view political and religious disagreement, especially with how things have changed with the advent of the internet and social media. Well, it looks like Peter took my advice and not only read the book, but was able to book Height for an interview on this podcast. So without further ado, I give you Jonathan Height and Peter Horn. Today's show, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt on how politics got so tribal. Our minds, our, our thinking, our reasoning did not evolve to help us find the truth necessarily. Um, they evolved to help us adapt and survive in the complex social worlds that we're in. And those worlds are very structured by relationships and teams and intergroup conflict. Our prime directive is not find the truth. Our prime directive is stay popular, manage your reputation. Don't get on the wrong side of the, of, the, of the powers that be. On the value of diverse viewpoints for teams and communities. If everybody in a community shares the same politics, I can guarantee you they are not able to think clearly about a complex issue. They will be experts in certain aspects of it, but they will be completely blind to other aspects of it. And that is why you need, in certain areas, you actually need a kind of an adversarial system, or at least you need other people who can challenge your confirmation bias. They don't share it. How schools, universities, parents, and citizens can do something about it. We have to educate for this complicated, hybrid, democratic republic. And part of that is going to be, I think, educating for some sense of moral and intellectual humility, that you don't know everything, that your group can't possibly know everything, um, that we're all deluded by motivated reasoning and confirmation bias, that we actually need engagement with people who are different from us to improve our own thinking. Plus, some of the research he's been doing on technology, anxiety, and depression. It turns out that the number of hours that one spends on a screen every day does not predict depression or anxiety. Screen time is not the enemy for de in terms of depression and anxiety. Social media is, and it is overwhelmingly for girls. So this, the, you know, does it lead to depression in boys? You know, maybe a little bit, but it's, it's not so clear. For girls, across different kinds of studies, it's pretty consistent. All that and much, much more on today's episode of Point of Learning. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt is the Thomas Cooley Professor of Ethical Leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business. He earned his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and taught for 16 years in the Department of Psychology at the University of Virginia. Haidt's research examines the intuitive foundations of morality and how morality varies across cultures, including the cultures known as progressive, conservative, and libertarian. His goal is to help people understand each other, live and work near each other, and even learn from each other, despite their moral differences. Haidt has co-founded a variety of organizations and collaborations that apply moral and social psychology toward that end, including heterodoxacademy.org, openmindplatform.org, and ethicalsystems.org. All those links are available on the show page for this episode. Haidt is the author of the book, The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. But we're mostly drawing today on ideas from his two New York Times best-selling books, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, and The Coddling of the American Mind, subtitle, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. That was co-authored with Greg Lukianoff. Haidt has written more than 100 academic articles. In 2019, he was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences 
and was chosen by Prospect Magazine as one of the world's top 50 thinkers. As of this month, his four TED Talks have been viewed nearly 8 million times. He's been interviewed by Bill Moyers, Bill Maher, Joe Rogan, Krista Tippett, Stephen Colbert, and Alan Alda, to name a few. So I was more than a little fired up that he accepted my invite to chat over Zoom in early June. So based on your work and what you're seeing right now as you visit schools across the country, what are the most urgent insights you'd like to share right now? You know, I wrote this book, The Coddling of the American Mind, with Greg Lukianoff, and it's about a variety of problems that are besetting Generation Z, so kids born in 1996 and later. What is happening everywhere, every university, every high school, every middle school, um, is a big increase in depression and anxiety. And there have been surveys of college presidents in the last couple of years saying, what are your top concerns? And the number one concern um, uh, uh, um, across the board, the number one, the most widely cited issue is uh, mental health services, the rise of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide. So something really big is happening to American kids. It began happening around 2012. The, The graphs of the rise of depression and anxiety, they just take off like a hockey stick for girls especially around 2012, plus or minus a year or two. Um, it's similar in Canada and the UK, and we can talk about other countries. It's, it's, not, you know, it's, it's cl- very clear in the English-speaking countries. I don't have as much data on other countries. So that is, um, that's the number one concern, and that's, that's really my top concern about kids is something about the way we're raising them, uh, the way we're educating them is, is creating... Uh, is creating teenagers and adults who are fragile, um, who are suffering, who are less effective, who are afraid to take risks, who are easily harmed by, by words or by events not going their way. And it's now filtering out into the workplace. Gen Z turned, um, Gen Z just began to graduate from college about two years ago. And now I'm hearing from uh, people in the corporate world that they're most most recent employees are much harder to incorporate. So we have a gigantic national issue. We have extraordinary amounts of suffering um, and we've got to figure out what's going on and then do something about it. So here's a confession. Uh, I've, I've chosen to focus our conversation on ideas of yours that improve our civil discourse. Because A, it's one deep interest of yours that I'm also passionate about. And so it's a through line of this podcast. And B, I needed some way to delimit the dozens of questions I'd otherwise be tempted to ask you. So we'll be talking about how we can better communicate around hard issues of shared concerns, drawing on ideas from just two of your books that I had real trouble putting down. The Righteous Mind from 2012, and as you just mentioned, The Coddling of the American Mind from 2018, uh, which as you said, you wrote with legal expert Greg Lukianoff. I, I want to say I forced myself not to read the happiness hypothesis before talking to you just to make things easier on me. So to start off with a softball, drawing on Sam Gosling's work, you've written that it's possible to guess people's political leanings at better than chance levels just from looking at photographs of their desks. This, the idea subtending that claim is that liberals and conservatives are wired differently. It's not just a matter of gravitating toward one pole or the other of a political spectrum in a given country at a given moment. There are deeper tendencies at work, right? Yes. What Sam Gosling found, he's a personality psychologist at the University of Texas, um, is that back when he was at UC Berkeley, they took photographs of students' dorm rooms. They asked the students to leave. Just don't do anything. Just step out. We're going to take photographs of your dorm rooms, and then we're going to have people rate them and guess whether you're on the left or the right. And it turns out, I don't remember what percentage, but people are you know, somewhat better than chance. Um, and the reason is because um, different personality types are attracted to the left and the right. And conservatives tend to be higher on conscientiousness. Um, uh, you know, I, I talk to all kinds of groups. Um, uh, I, I speak at organizations on the left and the right. Uh, but if if the event is going to start on time and the food is kind of boring and predictable and a lot of the men are wearing jackets and ties, I know it's a right-leaning group. 
Whereas uh, if it doesn't start on time and the food is more varied and there's, you know, people are, you know, the dress code, there's no dress code, um, then it's probably a, a left-leaning group. And, it's, and Gosling found the same thing in the dorm rooms. Not exactly the same thing, but like conservatives had more calendars and postage stamps. Uh, liberals had more world music and, uh, you know, and novels or something like that. So... Um, uh, the big finding is that um, uh, is that the people on the right are more conscientious, and the other one there are various differences on. Um, oh, the big one is since it is um, uh, openness to experience. People on the left are more curious about the world, the, the world beyond their local environment. Uh, conservatives tend to be more parochial, which is not an insult. It means they are more rooted. They care more about their community. Um, they're not going to say that they're citizens of the world. They're citizens of their town. Uh, before that. And I like that you highlight, uh, you know, the conscientiousness, um, the, you know, the, the, the sense of the positive aspects of, uh, for example, conservatism, because you, you can tend that as a starting point for more civil exchanges. It's very helpful to recognize where liberals and conservatives each bring strengths to a moral conversation. And I want to say, you, you've also, uh, you know, you're very careful in your language um, that, that, you know, for example, liberal does not equal necessarily just the, the left, what we would consider the left right now in terms of, you know, U.S. politics and conservative on the right. But you're talking about these kind of general tendencies, uh, as you said, Mark, by openness to experience would be one of those things. So I noted when you were talking a few years ago with Krista Tippett, he said, he, he said what I'd like to see is a revamped civics curriculum, where we teach very explicitly the long tradition of left-right, to teach what each side, uh, where their strengths are, where their excellences are, uh, because both are essential. One without the other creates an unbalanced American civic order. You need a party, a party of progress or reform and a party of stability and order. Um, so I just wanted to, to see if you'd be willing to riff on that for a little bit, because... Certainly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can riff for as long as we got on that one. So, I mean, you know, I, I guess I always like to step back before I answer a question and, and bring in the relevant psychology. Please. Um, but the, the relevant psychology here is that our minds, our, our thinking, our reasoning did not evolve to help us find the truth necessarily. Um, they evolved to help us adapt and survive in the complex social worlds that we're in. And those worlds are very structured by relationships and teams and intergroup conflict. And so we are very, very good at finding reasons to support our team or ourself. As soon as somebody accuses you of something, your mind goes into overdrive finding reasons why you are innocent and uh, your spouse, if that's the person accusing you, uh, is guilty or is guilty of hypocrisy as well. And why did she say this? And didn't yesterday, she just did that. So we go into legal mode automatically. And um, when we are considering any kind of policy issue, should we raise or lower taxes? What should we do for our immigration policy? Whatever it is, we don't say, hmm, what's the argument on both sides? What's the evidence? Uh, we tend to start uh, by preferring one solution or liking one side. If it's a politicized issue, it's the one that our team has already staked out for us. And then we're really good at finding evidence to support uh, what we believe, and we're really good at batting away any counter evidence. And this is why um, you can't change people's minds uh, just by giving them reasons. You yourself are surely open to reasons and reasonable, but you know, all those people you talk to and argue with on the other side, they're just so pig-headed. All right, so that's the relevant psychology. It's called motivated reasoning or confirmation bias. Given that, Given that, if everybody in a community shares the same politics, I can guarantee you they are not able to think clearly about a complex issue. They will be experts in certain aspects of it, but they will be completely blind to other aspects of it. And that is why you need, in certain areas, you actually need a kind of an adversarial system, or at least you need other people who can challenge your confirmation bias. They don't share it. And that's why in our legal system, we instantiate the idea that there's going to be somebody, uh, you know, one attorney on one side looking for evidence to, to defend the client, and then there'll be a prosecutor looking for evidence to convict the, the client or the accused, whoever it is. 
Um, so we need other people to question, to challenge our confirmation bias. Um, journalists understand this. They they try to get both sides of a story. You can't understand something if you just have, have one side. All right, so that's the relevant psychology. Now back to your question about a civics curriculum. Um, so I, uh, I was always on the left growing up. Uh, I'm a kind of a, you know, a stereotypical, you know, I'm, I'm you know, Jewish, raised in the suburbs of New York. I went to Yale. So I never had a conservative thought in my head, nor did I ever meet a conservative person that I knew to be conservative pretty much. I'm exaggerating. I mean, there were a couple of conservatives at Yale, but very few. Um, uh, and it, it wasn't until I began studying political psychology in my 40s at, at the University of Virginia uh, that I, I set out to teach a graduate seminar on, on political psychology. And it's only then that I actually set out to understand conservatives. And I began, I subscribed to National Review. Um, I watched Fox News. Um, I tried to meet conservatives and talk with them. And what I discovered is that um, Talking to people who didn't share my worldview was the most enlightening thing I could do. I learned more from that reading and conversation you know, than I could from any 10 issues of The New Yorker and The New York Times put together. So um, we actually need other people to help us see the full story. And um, the long tradition of left and right can be defined almost in this way. Um, the people who sat on the left side of the General Assembly in Paris during the revolution were the ones who wanted more change. And, you know, I don't know if they said kill the king, but, you know, let's knock down this, this rotten structure and, you know, let, we need progress. And the people who sat on the right side are the ones who said, no, don't rip up everything. We, you know, we, there's value in tradition. There's value in order. Uh, and that's a perennial debate in every society. And it's an essential debate in every society. You need a left and you need a right. Now, I'm not saying that the two parties in the United States now are equally sane uh, or equally correct. I'm just saying that um, if you just have one view represented, I can tell you in advance where this is going to go wrong, what kinds of excesses there's going to be if there's not uh, people and, and institutions on the other side uh, pushing to get a balance. You've even noted that in talking about how essential this is, well, I have, we have two questions. One is about our uh, this this cognitive bias toward confirmation, toward finding um, evidence that supports our own view, but overlooking, you know, kind of cherry picking um, to overlook the data that that could disconfirm it. Right? What what would be the what would be the evolutionary advantage of that um, to your way of thinking about it? So let's look at our sense perception, which is extremely good. Our eyes, our ears are amazing. And you know it's not adaptive to misjudge the thickness of ice that you're walking on, uh, or to you know not see a, a, a tree that's in your way. So our visual systems, our auditory systems, are superbly tuned to aspects of the physical world that are really there that matter for us. Okay, but what about our social cognition? Is it essential that we understand the true nature of immigration? Is it essential, you know, or, or, or gender? Is that really essential? Or is it more essential that we not get kicked out of the, kicked off the team or ostracized? I see. The penalty for deviance is traditionally not death, it's traditionally ostracism. You kick people out. Um, I le I'm reading a lot of Roman history and the Stoics. Sure. Um, and, you know, it's true the emperors would sometimes demand that somebody be killed, but more typically they just say, no, nope, you're banished. You have to go off to a little island someplace. So this is the ancient human thing is that people who are deviants, we get rid of them. And that in the old world meant death. So our prime directive is not find the truth. Our prime directive is stay popular, manage your reputation. Don't get on the wrong side of the, of the, of the powers that be. That makes a lot of sense. Again, on confirmation bias, you've noted that there is even been research trying to train people, you know, how to question their own assumptions, but that nobody's really found a way to, to do it, you know, that works. It's very hard to train people to do it. So, in fact, if you're, going to, if you're going to try to understand an issue fully from a number of different vantage points, really, you do need other people. Right. That's right. There's research on, the psychological term is debiasing. Can we train people to overcome their biases? Uh, and there's a review paper on this by Scott Lilienfeld. And my recollection of this paper from 10 or 15 years ago or more um, was that no, there, there was no technique that has been shown to really work. Uh, you know, you can train people to see all, you know, all kinds of biases and boy, can they detect them in others, but we're just not good at detecting them in ourselves. We don't want to, there's not really any payoff for it. Um, and so the only really reliable way is another person 
and another person that you have some relationship with so that you're not going to just reject them. So the internet in theory, hooks us up to the world. We have the world's information at our fingertips. It could be great for this. Unfortunately, interacting with strangers in a, in a short-term environment, so Twitter is the worst possible environment. You have just you know, 240 characters, a person who may not be using their real name, um, and it's in front of an audience. So uh, you're, you're, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, incentive to do moral grandstanding, signaling, virtue signaling, uh, so I think these are essential skills. Let's bring it back to the educational context now. Um, if you don't teach critical thinking, ability to evaluate evidence, um, and all the other skills that educators have known for so long, if you don't teach those, people are not going to come to them um, on their own generally. These are hard skills that need to be taught. But as I understand it, the research on critical thinking, there was a lot of it in the 80s, I remember, it didn't come up with a lot. Like, it's very hard to teach these things. And so I, as a social psychologist, um, I tend to say, well, often the solution is not to be found in cognitive psychology, it's to be found in social psychology. If you really want to make people into critical thinkers, don't teach them, you know, modus ponens arguments or don't teach them six different, you know, fallacies or syllogisms. Teach them humility. Teach them that you're wrong far more than you could ever realize. Teach them that it's actually fun to learn. Uh, and the best way to learn is to, is to approach people with an attitude of curiosity, not hatred. Curiosity. Teach them a, a, a habit of seeking out other people for conversation. Um, and that will create a person who ends up getting much closer to the truth. See, I, w I was naive, uh, maybe, when I was teaching uh, high school. About the time that I was, uh, I'm going to say, around up, it was 30, so this would be like 2005, the top of... Um, uh, uh, well, what did, you, what did you teach them? What did, well, what did you tell was, them to do? This, this was the thing. I thought if I taught kids how to construct effective arguments, it's pretty much what you just said, um, how to spot logical fallacies, you know, because it, it, it's very difficult to teach kind of um, effective reasoning in a positive direction, but if you can recognize some of the ways that reasoning is liable to go wrong, whether it's hasty generalization or a post hoc um, you know, fallacy, if you can recognize those kinds of things, then it, you, it's possible perhaps to work backwards, right? Um, we included. Yeah, for, yeah. For a different species, it would be just like when we, you know, when we, like my wife and I, we teach our kids about healthy eating. Does that have an effect? No, because they're not motivated to eat healthy. They're motivated to eat sugar and salt and fat. Well, here's here's you know here's what turned out. We, and we did do some of what you were just talking about um, in terms of trying to find reliable information, right? And that includes navigating the dizzying array of internet sources. Um, but this. Um, metaphor that you use, which is probably one of the first places in The Righteous Mind where I was like, oh man, that's me, um, is something you alluded to a few moments ago, that we all believe that we are scientists, you know, just looking for data, you know, that we believe that we have this rational mind where we go out and, and do that, but in fact, what we're doing is lawyers making cases post-positively, you know, for what we already think is true, and we are establishing those justifications afterward. Um, what? Yep, that's the heart of the righteous mind. That's, that's uh, the, the first principle of moral psychology. That's but, right. But what I did find that helped when we would do a, a unit on rhetoric and argumentation was the environment that had already been established in the classroom. Um, and so that we framed it, you know, I was very careful because, uh, you know, high school kids in particular, if they've been through a certain, this is in an English classroom, I should say, uh, you know, after they've been through uh, enough social studies, they can start to think that, you know, a debate, anytime you call something a debate, it is about, mm. you know, points, scoring points. Yeah, winning. And I've got to winning win. and, and losing face. Um, but, so it, it would always be a, a kind of argumentative discussion or conversation. I would, I would use that I would use that form. But then I found that it was really the comfort level, uh, as you said, the relationships uh, between the kids because it was a place um, you know, and I, I you know, tried to make very sure that they weren't also trying to, um, you know, say things that they thought that I would agree with, because I mm -hmm. laid out that's the opposite yeah. of what we're talking about here, though that's a difficult, um, it's a heavy lift, um, as I was talking about with John Zimmerman a couple months ago, uh, when you're the teacher and you have the grade book and so forth. 
But to the extent that people were able to do it, they were able to do it because they trusted that they wouldn't be piled on, that they wouldn't be the, the you know that they wouldn't be ostracized, you know there wouldn't be like ad hominem attacks coming in their direction, and that we'd keep right. it to the ideas. But that is not something, as you said, that you can just walk up and do with somebody. It depends on a relationship that you have That's and right. some kind of trust that it's going to be okay to do that because it's hard. Mm-hmm. That's right. And what year were you teaching? What, tell me again the years you were teaching. I did that from like 2005, I'm going to say, up through uh, 2015, about 10 years. Okay. Okay. So actually, let me ask you, because uh, um, the social media changed radically between oh, yeah. 2009 and 2012. Before 2009, Facebook, um, MySpace, all those things, it was just like, here I am, you know, here, I'll, look at all my friends, look at the, the, the music group, the, you know, the, the bands that I like. In 2009, Facebook introduces the like button and Twitter copies it. Twitter introduces the retweet button and Facebook copies it. And so, uh, so suddenly social media is much more engaging, addicting. They've got huge amounts of information about each user. They use that. They algorithmize the newsfeed. So 2000 and 2012, we go from social media being pretty benign to it being an outrage machine, call, facilitating call-out culture. And these are exactly the years when American teens flood onto social media. If you look at data on what percentage we're using it, like Facebook, you know, what percent we're using a social media site every day, in 2009, it was much less than half of high school students were, uh, but by 2011 or 2012, it was a large majority were. So that's when everything changes. And when I go around uh, speaking at high schools, middle schools, elsewhere, I always ask the students about call-out culture, and they all recognize it, um, and they all hate it. For those fortunate enough not to be familiar with call-out culture, it refers to a form of public shaming that takes place online, usually on social media, especially Twitter. Callouts often aim to hold individuals and groups accountable for objectionable statements and actions, but they usually end up raising the level of outrage for all parties. So for a generation that's been raised where one word out of place, or even not out of place, just anything you say can be taken out of context and blown up and, and they can, someone can put a spin on it and, and put a meme next to it. Um, so you can be socially destroyed at any time. And I do think this is part of the reason why anxiety takes off, especially for girls in 2012, because that's exactly when they got on social media. And I think the girls really suffered from it much more than the boys. Boys are mostly doing video games more than social media. Um, So to bring it back to what we were just talking about, you can try to teach critical reasoning skills, but I would guess that teenagers, uh, high school kids, are vastly more concerned about the social dynamics on social media than they are about detecting a fallacy in somebody's argument. For more thoughts on establishing a classroom environment where students are inclined to develop the trust necessary for deeper conversations, check out Point of Learning Episode 3 with guest Paula Roy. Also, I'm proud to announce that Point of Learning has been inducted into Lyceum, a new platform for education podcasts. Here's 30 seconds about that from the founder of Lyceum, and then we'll get right back to my conversation with Jonathan Haidt. Hi. I'm Zachary Davis. I'm the host of two podcasts, Ministry of Ideas, which explores the philosophy behind everyday concepts, and Writ Large, a new podcast about the books that change the world. I love educational podcasts. I love listening to them and talking about them. I want everyone to have that chance, and so I've built a new platform called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts and have conversations about them. There are more than a million podcasts out there, We've done the hard work of sifting through them and finding only the very best education shows to listen to. Shows like the one you're listening to right now. So if you love learning, download Lyceum today on the App Store or Google Play or visit us at lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. So one of the things that I was trying to figure out, I think just as social media was getting nasty, was trying to think about, well, what kinds of devices, because we, you know, um, what kinds of devices would be okay, you know, to bring into the classroom um, if we can't afford yet to have a laptop on a one-to-one basis, for example, you know, what would it be like for kids? And this is like 2013, right? For kids to have, you know, you know their phones or like an uh, iPod Touch uh, was one of the options that, that kids already had to see how they could connect with uh, a, a internet media 
um, and other sorts of platforms when um, what was you know then called 2.0. Uh, we experimented with this, but you know, I kept asking also students what they thought about it, what was working for them, and and they were actually very honest, saying that the phone is a distraction. It is hard for me to use in this way, and especially since hearing some of the data that you have discussed and written about, presented on, um, it just becomes you know overwhelmingly clear that a strong case can be made. Um, for not allowing phones, in particular, uh, in school during the school day. Um, yes. Another one of your points is, of course, keeping kids off of social media before they get to high school. Um, but I, you know, I want to <laughs> confess this is what, this is one of the things that I was thinking about as a teacher years ago, trying to trying to say, well, how can we take advantage of some of this new technology and some of the new ways of learning that are possible? Um, but you know, there is this. There is this noted downside too. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk about two different downsides. One is mental health problems, and the other is distraction and learning. And so on the mental health side, um, until recently, there was a big debate as to whether you know have, do have smartphones destroyed a generation? Is screen time um, you know causing the rise of depression, anxiety? And so I got into that debate uh, because. Greg Lukianoff and I covered it in our book, and we focused on social media. But when we wrote the book, we did say that uh, limits on screen time, you know, that because it will push out. If you let your, these devices are magical, and if you let a kid have unlimited access to them, it's going to push out other activities. So, um, uh, so there's a lot of concern about screens and phones. But as I've dug into the debate, and as I've engaged with critics who said, no, you know, let's look at the evidence. It turns out that the number of hours that one spends on a screen every day does not predict depression or anxiety. Screen time is not the enemy for de in terms of depression and anxiety. Social media is, and it is overwhelmingly for girls. So this, the, you know, does it lead to depression in boys? You know, maybe a little bit, but it's, it's not so clear. For girls, across different kinds of studies, it's pretty consistent. It's not a huge effect, but it is clearly a, it, it is, I believe, a, clearly a contributor. So there's a really, really strong argument to be made um, for trying to keep kids, especially girls, from even getting a social media account until high school. They're supposed to wait till they're 13, but when my son entered middle school, you know, age 11, he said everybody else has an Instagram account. Everybody just lies. This is a really, really bad idea, because, and I think it, um, it, it contributes to the mental health crisis for girls. So anybody out there, especially if you're in a middle school, uh, remember, the parents can't just make the decision themselves because if you know, your kid says, but everybody else is on it, I'll be excluded, and no parent wants their kid to be the outcast. So we all need help from administrators, especially middle school principals, teachers, to say, parents, please don't even let them get an account until high school. All right, that's the mental health. But what you're talking about is more the distraction issue. And what I can report there is that um, I've always, in my courses uh, at UVA and uh, especially here at NYU Stern, where I'm teaching MBA students in their 20s, I've always laid out, here's the problem with distraction. We all think we can do multitasking, but we can't. So I'm going to let you have your laptops uh, or devices as long as you, you know, all say out loud this pledge that you will not use it for anything other than class activities, that you will not shop, you're not going to, you know, do email, you're just going to do it for class activities. And, I, and I've always done that because I want to trust my students. But only a few years ago did I think to ask. And it turns out they don't want it. They all, not all, but you know, when I put it to a vote and I say, okay, how many of you think we should have just a no devices policy? Most of the MBA students say yes because they know if there's a screen in front of them, they can't pay attention to the lecture. And even if they're trying, the person next to them is now multitasking and they, oh, okay, why don't I do that too? So, and that's for 27-year-olds. Yeah. Think about being a 15-year-old. Uh, and this is laptops we're talking about. Now, a laptop, of course, gives you access to everything, but a touchscreen gives you a reward faster. A touchscreen is more uh, immersive, more engaging than is a laptop. So I think it is really important for K-12 educators to do everything they can to keep kids away from their, uh, from, especially from their devices. Uh, there may be reasons why you'd need a computer at times, of course, but if they have access to their own phone, how can they possibly resist? There are so many psychologists in Silicon Valley who are experts in keeping that kid on his phone. The attention economy, yeah. So it's crazy that school, schools let kids have 
phones in their pockets or even their backpacks because they they use them they'll use them during class breaks they'll sneak into the bathroom so i feel very strongly about this i don't you know I, we need really good clear evidence i want schools to do clear experiments in one school you have a permissive policy or you know in five schools in a school district five high schools you have a permissive policy in five schools you say you know no you don't even get access to your phone except when you're you know you arrive and when you leave uh, we need good data on this I really applaud bringing kids in on the conversation and the discussion, you know, as opposed to um, there would be some there would be some administrators who temptation would be like, oh, this is bad, so we're going to ban it, and kids wouldn't understand why or what was going on. They wouldn't have heard about the evidence, let alone been involved in any kind of participatory action research um, that might you know, help them understand, okay, well, this is what's happening here. Because, of course, if we're trying to think about their uh, making better decisions, but also participating as citizens in that school community, in the classroom and in the school community um, as agents there, I just, you know, uh, my bias is toward trying to involve the students, especially at the high school level, you know, as much as possible. So this is what we think is right, and here's why. Yes, no, I, I, I think it's so important to bring the students in. One of the really good things that I've learned about Gen Z is that they are not in denial. So I've spoken at a number of middle schools and high schools, um, and of course at colleges. And you know, I lay out, look, here's what's going on: high rates of depression, anxiety, fragility, overprotected, risk averse. You know, it's a pretty damning portrait of their generation. I don't blame them for it. I explain how this happened. You know, that adults following good intentions were trying to help them, protect them. So I'm not blaming them, but it is a pretty negative portrayal of their generation. And at the end of the talk, I generally say, okay, you know, if you're born after 1996, if you're a Gen Z student, what do you think? Did I largely get this right, or is this a mis mispresentation of your generation? And it's overwhelmingly, it's almost, it's, it's usually around 100% say, yes, this is right. Because they recognize, they recognize that they're suffering from anxiety and depression. They recognize that social media call-out culture is damaging them. They hate it. Um, they recognize they've been overprotected. They don't want to be so overprotected. And so if you bring them in on it and you say, you know, you know here's what the evidence says, you know, what, what are your goals? You know, do you want to learn or do you want to stay connected on social media all day long? No, you know, if every, as long as everybody else is off, like they, I wouldn't want to be off if everyone else is on because I'll, I'll be left out. But if everyone is off, and so I think we have to recognize kids are caught in a lot of, uh, well, economists call them social dilemmas or, you know, um, cooperation games where each, you know, everybody's better off if nobody does this behavior, um, but each person is better off doing the behavior. So, uh, you know, the classic example being if you graze your sheep on the town commons, you're better off. But if everybody does it, then the commons dies. And so kids are trapped in a lot of those things. And you know what? In Silicon Valley, they know that and they engineered it that way. That's the way they can get everybody on. And it's up to us, parents and educators working together, to create a path by which the kids can get out of it. And if you bring them in, and it's a great chance to explain, you know, like yes. Commons dilemmas and explain social science concepts. Um, if you bring them in on it, and let, okay, let's craft a healthy media environment. Let's craft a healthy learning environment. Uh, you know, I think they'll generally be very supportive. So rising rates of depression and anxiety, particularly in girls, um, the, the dangers of social media, these are a couple of the topics that you uh, discuss in, as, as some of the intersecting strands um, at work uh, in the, the, the coddling of the American mind. I wanted to talk about another one. Um, I'm very interested in the link between free play and, yeah, and democratic skills, especially at this moment, we seem particularly inept at working through uh, disagreements. So this is one of the phenomena you, you talk about. Um, first, what is free play? So free play is what mammals do. Um, mammals, all mammals play. Uh, and if all mammals play, you know, bunny rabbits play and develop the skills that they'll need as bunny rabbits and wolves play uh, at the skills they'll need as wolves. Uh, and um, they all play chasing games and the wolves seem to prefer being the chaser uh, and uh, rabbits seem to prefer being the, uh, practicing their fleeing skills. So when I was a grad student, yeah, when I was a grad student in Philadelphia, I lived uh, in, a, in a neighborhood in South Philadelphia with a lot of, a lot of families. And I'll never forget one day, because I used to play, I was, you know, I was in my mid twenties and I, you know, I've always loved kids and I always loved playing with kids. So I was known as like the, you know, the grown up that they could play with. And I remember one day some of the kids came, they rang my doorbell and they 
guys said, you know, Mr. John, will you chase us? Like they wanted this big adult to come chase them. Like that's fun um, because they're practicing their fleeing skills. This is what, so my point is, Interesting. all mammals, all mammal species practice play. It's essential for our development of basic adult skills that we'll need as members of our species, okay? So um, what do kids do? Um, kids, you know, as is well known, if you give, the, you know, young kids, if you give them a present, they might find the box more interesting. They might find the ribbons more interesting because they're creative. They're, they're taking things, they're, they're working it out both with the object and with the other kids. And this is really important. One of the most essential human skills is shared representations. We work with other kids to develop like okay, let's pretend that this is the spaceship. Okay, yeah, and then a giraffe comes. Like, no, it can't be a giraffe, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, um, so they're working out these shared representations with, uh, with other kids, and this is play too. Um, and what we did, and so, you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm, I was born in 1963, uh, and um, there was a gigantic crime wave uh, from the 1960s oh, yeah. to the 1990s, and during that crime wave, all kids went out to play. When you were seven or eight years old, you went out to play. And then something weird happened. The crime rate plummeted in the 1990s. There are a lot of reasons for that, but the crime rate, the crime wave sort of ends in the 1990s. And just as the crime wave is ending, Americans freaked out about child abduction. And we thought, stranger danger, if you let your kid outside, she'll be abducted. And it's true that a few were almost zero. I mean, in a country of 350 million people, there's only about 100, 150 true kidnappings every year. It's almost, it's almost zero. But we freaked out about it just as life was getting safe. And we said, no more unsupervised outdoor play. You have to stay where I can see you. And at the same time, uh, we had rising competition to get into college. And so we had, especially for the middle class and above, this idea of what's called concerted cultivation parenting. Your childhood is a group activity for our family to get you into the top college, which means after school, you've got lessons, you've got activities. So for a variety of reasons, unsupervised free play largely vanished for younger kids especially, um, and supervised structured activities exploded. What happens? We took young mammals and we deprived them of the activity they most needed. What they most need is not math and it's not violin lessons. It's unstructured time with other kids deciding what should we do today? I don't know, what do you think? Well, let's go down to, you know, let's go down to the village and see what's going on. Or, you know, let's go, let's go play ball in the park. Um, we took away the most nutritious activity for human development, which is unstructured free play. And we replaced it with stuff that isn't so healthy. Soccer practice, it's good. It's good to do soccer practice, but there's a coach telling you what to do all the time. It's not free play. Uh, and this, we think, is one of the big reasons why the mental health of Gen Z has deteriorated so quickly. Um, in fact, we've got quotes in the book. Um, Peter Gray, a psychologist at Boston College, uh, and there's also a Norwegian researcher, Sandseeder. Both of them have articles around 2010, 2011, saying, you know, folks, free play is declining. Like, we've got to let kids play. And if we don't let kids play, there's going to be a rise of depression and anxiety. They literally predicted this around 2010, 2011. Mm. And a year or two later, boom, the rates go skyrocketing. To learn more about how to counter the culture of overprotection for kids in elementary and even middle school, visit letgrow.org. There's a link on the show page. And so as far as, the, you know, the working things out aspect, you know, you noted that free, free play is always voluntary, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody can yep. quit at any time, and, which would disrupt the activity. And because of that, children need to pay close attention to the needs and concerns of others if they want to keep the game going. Um, exactly. You know, as opposed to the coach saying, hey, you stay in there, right? So they got to work out conflicts uh, over fairness on their own. No adult can be called upon to side with one child against another. Um, That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And what is it the kids most want? What right. is it they're most afraid of? They most want to fit in. They're most afraid of being ostracized or kicked out. So if you're the kid who can't cooperate, if you're the kid who's always demanding to get your way, guess what? Other kids aren't going to want to play with you. So you learn to get along with others. You learn to self-control. You learn to regulate your demands. You learn to read other people's faces. So the most important social skills, the skills we need, the skills we want to see in college, the skills that employers want, um, all of those are learned in free play. But what happens when instead of free play, they're always in a structured environment with a coach or a teacher? What happens when there's a conflict? Who do you go to? In that situation, kids practice skills of reporting. 
That is, they learn to make the best case they can to the adult that so-and-so broke the rules. She's wrong, I'm right, you judge. And so this, this is what we've seen in college. This is what happened. It really swept in around 2014, 2015. Um, this, more, this culture of students reporting each other for speech violations um, uh, to various deans. Uh, and uh, it's, just, it's, made it, it's, it's put us all on eggshells. We're all now much more afraid. We're very careful about what we say in class because if we offend someone, there's all kinds of reporting mechanisms and they were raised to do this. Um, it's not good for democracy. It's not practice for a complicated, diverse society. Um, it's, it's fomenting an attitude of victimhood is what some people say. I can distinctly remember uh, in, in kindergarten, uh, it would, this happened exactly once, and it was a recess, it was, you know, again, supervised, and, and again, so just to give you, this is 1980, 81, I'm, I'm, I'm 45. Um, it happened exactly once, uh, because this was uh, supervised only in the sense that if somebody starts bleeding, you know, somebody would notice, or, you know, whatever. I mean, there's somebody nearby, but I mean, that was not, like, interacting. I decided that wouldn't it be great when we're playing superheroes? It wouldn't it be great if I could be if I if I was a superhero that did not exist, called the king of the superheroes, who had all the powers of every other superhero. Like I came up with this idea after somebody else had claimed Batman and Spider-Man and so forth. I came up with this idea. It did not go over well, um, you know. Right. And and that you was and that, they, and that was you. and that was the end of the idea. You know, like that yeah. was that. You know, I did not try that again. I was like, yeah, I guess that was. Yeah, uh, could have been better considered. You've written about changing your mind, you know, uh, quite a bit. And this is a wonderful uh, capacity like compromise um, that we don't <laughs> talk about very often. But you know, changing your mind quite a bit since your upbringing uh, or you're your growing up as a secular liberal. Um, in terms of how you thought about mo morality, politics, and religion, and I wanted to ask you about somebody um, that I've heard you, you know, write about and speak about uh, who helped you with this. Because this is a show about what and how and why we learn. I often ask guests about a teacher who had a strong influence on them. But in your case, you know, I know uh, that you've said some very, uh, you know, impressive things about Richard Schwader, um, the professor yes. at University of Chicago, who was your postdoctoral advisor. What, what yeah. was it? Sure. So, uh, so I went to Penn and I had some wonderful professors there, <clears throat> um, especially um, Paul Rosin, a general psychologist who just had a love of learning, a love of psychology, just a rampant curiosity. And then also Alan Fisk, an anthropologist who first introduced me to cultural psychology, first, the first person who assigned me to read ethnographies, full portraits of other cultures. <clears throat> So Rosin and Fisk really, uh, really started the process and really started opening me up um, to the, the joys of psychology and cultural psychology. And both of them had worked with Richard Schwader, a, a psychological anthropologist at the University of Chicago. And my dissertation uh, grew into a study of whether um, Rick Schwader was right in his debate with Elliot Turiel over the nature of moral knowledge. Um, uh, is the moral domain limited to issues of harm rights and justice, or is it broader in some cultures? Uh, and so for a variety of reasons, I ended up applying for a postdoc uh, to go to Chicago, and I worked with Schwader for two years. And during that time, because I was working with Schwader, he had really good research contacts in uh, Bhubaneswar, India, in the east coast of India, um, a, a city, the capital of, of Odisha province. Uh, so I got, a, I got a, an award a grant to travel there, and I did three months of, of field work. I mean, for a psychologist, it was field work. Um, and uh, what Schwader taught me was, um, first, how to think about pluralism. That is, um, it's not that there's one morality, but it's also not that there's no morality or that everybody is right. Uh, Schwader, Schwader's view is pluralism. There's more than one right way. And Schwader was very influenced by Isaiah Berlin, the philosopher. Uh, and I think those skills, the, thinking about how, uh, how can you live in a world where people have different values without retreating to relativism or nihilism. Uh, so I learned that from Schwader. Um, the other thing I learned from him um, is how to appreciate a community that has a broader and more binding morality. So Schwader wrote about the ethics of autonomy, which we all know in the West, but there's also the ethics of community, sort of parochialism, everybody do your assigned job. It's very clear in Hinduism. 
And the ethics of divinity, uh, norms about purity and pollution and how you have a sacred essence within you that you must guard, um, which are at the heart of almost all the American culture war issues around sexuality, drug use, flag burning, all sorts of issues that seem where the right seems irrational. It's often be to people on the left, I mean, um, it's often because they have a broader moral domain. They're thinking about issues of loyalty, respect, duty, sacredness, purity. Um, so Schwader really opened my mind um, to different moralities. And here I was very much on the left. I hated Republicans. I hated conservatives. Um, and uh, here I was now going to India trying to understand a society uh, that was traditional, gender segregated, very hierarchical, very religious. Um, and they were really nice to me. And they made it easy to, to like. And in that way, it opened my heart to really listen to them. And I'd done a lot of reading also. I was trying to understand um, their, their, their way of life. And Schwader really helped me with that. So when I think about you know, my intellectual biography and all the great teachers I had from, middle, you know, from social studies teachers in middle school through, uh, through my AP history teachers in high school, uh, through wonderful professors at Yale, um, grad school, and then on to, to Richard Schwader, um, it all ultimately prepared me to step out of my own moral matrix, my sort of network of beliefs that I got from being a, you know, an American progressive in the 1980s, let's say. It all prepared me to step out of my own moral matrix and enter into the moral matrix or moral worldview of other people. And that's a skill that has been enormously valuable, um, especially as American society fragments, as our cultural war heats up, uh, as we descend into increased conflict. Um, it's made it harder for me to be a you know, full-throated member of any team, um, but I, I, I think I at least have an understanding of what's happening to us and why we're descending into madness. Uh, we're not crazy, we're not uh, insane, um, but we are normal creatures who evolved for tribal intergroup conflict who had the benefit of living in a society that was able to, to progressively dampen down those ethnic identities and other identities. Obviously not perfectly, but boy, the, the trajectory of the late 20th century sure was a good direction. Things got better decade after decade. Um, and now for a lot of reasons, the, the benefits we had, the, the factors that gave us more cohesion in the 20th century, a lot of them are falling away. Um, so anyway, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying it's really exciting to study moral psychology right now because at least I have the pleasure of trying to figure out what's going on rather than just the despair of seeing our society go to hell. Well, we, we started talking about the difference between liberals uh, and conservatives, again, in these in kind of general categories. And so you've used this very interesting metaphor, and this is going back to the righteous mind, um, you know, whose subtitle is why good people are divided by politics and religion. And one of the things that you help, especially this liberal, um, understand uh, is that there, it, it, you can, you can, uh, through your metaphor of a comparison to uh, almost taste receptors on a tongue, being aware that there are different kinds of things, different kinds of flavors that speak to different groups. And whereas everybody, um, you know, uh, liberal and conservative, uh, can respond to ideas of care and fairness, um, you know, people, it, it, liberals can often stop there. Whereas in addition to that, um, there are these other values of autonomy, loyalty, authority, purity, or sanctity that are available to people on the more conservative side. And so a couple of things come from that. One is that, given the kind of bias of media and culture toward a kind of liberal perspective, conservatives are pretty comfortable you know, with, the, with the liberal world, that they know where liberals come from. But so many conservative ideas don't really make sense to uh, liberals, because they, mm -hmm. they, they, they tick in these other uh, places that are just, you know, when you were talking about, you know, sanctity uh, and, and related to purity in India, um, that's something that was difficult for you to, you know, <laughs> grasp at first, and then it, it made sense and things began to open up, because you're looking at something that is pretty different. Yeah. Um, and so, I was, you know, I was struck with what opens up as a result of thinking about these kinds of things, that there are different kinds of strengths or excellences that these different groups bring. But I also wondered, just in terms of, you know, some of the images of this past week, um, you know, you have like a Black Lives Matter slogan. Mm -hmm. Certainly that, that talks about care and fairness, whether you're talking about equality or equity. 
Uh, but then you have Blue Lives Matter responding to that, which gets at some of those same things, but also brings in this value of authority, like we need law and order. Is this, you know, this, this would, yeah. would this be all yeah. right? I'm just trying to think yeah. about some of the some of the things that we've seen, um, you know, including our uh, president standing in front of St. John's Episcopal Church, clutching that that Bible uh, by his fingertips, you know, as if he had just read like Ivanka's diary, talking about her, you know, unloading about her narcissistic dad or something. He didn't really seem to want to touch it, but this, yeah, the symbols there um, were very powerful. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, yes, I, I, I think that whenever we have a, a big blow up, whenever we have a, a conflict that pits left and right in the United States, generally speaking, um, you will find the left is, is drawing on um, language and concerns about fairness, justice, equality, and also care, violence. So, you know, the, the, the moral language of, of the protesters and of Black Lives Matter is incredibly powerful. It's accessible to everybody. Uh, I, I look out on Washington Square Park right now and somebody had spray painted on on the arch uh you know blm stop killing my people um and so um so it's a language everybody understands now conservatives tend to be also they understand that they they care for their children they care for their dogs so it's not as though they don't have that but conservative morality tends not to be built on care and compassion it tends to be built more on notions of personal responsibility uh, and uh, you know and uh, uh, duty and respect for authority and tradition now, there are many kinds of conservatism and many kinds of, of, of liberalism um, so uh, we have um, you know the spectacle of Donald Trump who is not a religious man who certainly has not lived anything like a Christian life um, holding up the Bible Bible as a you know marketing um, marketing tactic to speak to uh, to speak to his core audience and to assure them I'm on your side. Um, I, uh, so you know there's a lot we could say about the ugly politics of the moment and the moral and political entrepreneurs who simply exploit it uh, for messaging rather than actually enacting it to create a better society. Um, I guess if we're talking especially to educators, maybe we could wrap it up by saying, this is the messed up world that your students are all going to graduate into. And so to get back to your question about a revamped ethics curriculum, um, I think it's vital that, that we focus on educating students for democracy, which means appreciating that democracy is important and valuable and fragile. Um, it doesn't come easily. We thought it did in the 1990s because America won the Cold War and there was no alternative. We thought that if we just let Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia, North Korea, just let them get market economies, let them rise in wealth, the people will demand liberties and they'll become liberal democracies too, just like us. Well, we were wrong about that. It turns out democracy is exactly as hard as the founding fathers said. They said it was hard. In fact, they didn't want democracy. They wanted a republic with democratic features. Yeah. And they warned us about demagogues and the way that a demagogue will come and speak to the passions. So we have to educate for this complicated hybrid democratic republic. And part of that is going to be, I think, educating for some sense of moral and intellectual humility that you don't know everything, that your group can't possibly know everything, um, that we're all deluded by motivated reasoning and confirmation bias, that we actually need engagement with people who are different from us to improve our own thinking. At any rate, I guess we'll just close by saying democracy is incredibly hard. And as hard as it is to believe that you might benefit from listening to people on the other side, and often it is hard to believe that uh, because often the people on the other side really do some loathsome some things, um, or at least some people on this side do loathe some things, and then we hate the whole side. Um, I guess I would just urge that um, that in K-12 education, especially in high school, um, lie the seeds of redemption for our country. We are in a very bad state, headed in a very bad direction, and we've got to help the next generation learn to handle this difficult democracy and thrive in it and improve it. John, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Peter, my pleasure. That's it for today's show. Once again, my great thanks to Professor Jonathan Haidt for joining me. Together with co-editor Richard Reeves and artist David Cicerelli, Dr. Haidt has developed a lively new version of some of philosopher John Stuart Mill's classic arguments in favor of viewpoint diversity and free speech. That work is called All Minus One, and it's available as a free download 
at heterodoxacademy.org. There are links to that and many other resources on the show page for this episode, including two of John's excellent books, The Righteous Mind, subtitled Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, and The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, co-authored by Greg Lukianoff. All music for today's soundtrack was composed and performed by Schaefer James. Finally, thanks to you for listening, rating, and reviewing this podcast, all of which makes it easier for people to find. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to share this episode with just one person you think would dig it. It will mean most coming from you. Point of Learning is written, recorded, edited, mixed, and produced by me here in sunny Buffalo, New York. My name is Peter Horn, and I'll be back at you just as soon as I can with a fresh episode all about what and how and why we learn. See you then. Uh, High school kids are vastly more concerned about the social dynamics on social media than they are about detecting a fallacy in somebody's argument. Uh, So I didn't say it like like that, though. You what? I didn't say it like that, though. (laughs) Just playing. (laughs) Detecting a fallacy.